0: defendant doesn't have to present any evidence, and you can't find him guilty unless the state proves beyond a reasonable doubt that he's guilty. What happened to Laquan McDonald was a tragedy, but it's not a murder. Provide Jason Van Dyke the presumption that he's entitled to, and don't allow the state to add a, another tragic chapter to this story.
1: From WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune, this is 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. I'm Jen White. This week, jurors heard testimony from witnesses called by Jason Van Dyke's attorneys. With most of the defense presented, a big question is whether Van Dyke's team has made a convincing case to jurors or if the officer himself will need to take the stand. The Tribune's Stacey St. Clair and Megan Cropot have been digging into that question. And you two have been asking attorneys and legal experts about this the past few days. Stacey, did the people you talked to have an opinion about how well the defense has presented its case?
2: Yeah, I think the people that we, we spoke with thought the defense, you know, had presented a solid case. They praised the animated video, which for the first time sort of showed the shooting from what is reported to be Jason Van Dyke's perspective, and they thought the expert witnesses were strong. But almost across the board, they said if Jason Van Dyke wants to, you know, walk out of that courthouse a free man with a not guilty, he needs to get on the stand and, and take it over the line.
1: Megan, what factors did people say Van Dyke's attorneys will weigh when they're trying to decide if he should testify on his own behalf?
3: Well, what we heard from just about everyone, everyone noted that this is a self-defense case. And in a self-defense case, it is really, really difficult to get an acquittal without the person getting on the stand saying, this is what went through my head at this time. Here is why this was justified. Here's why it was self-defense. And in general, you know, that has risks. You're opening yourself up to cross-examination. You're giving the prosecution an opening to even potentially get into some of Van Dyke's past citizen complaints, that sort of thing. And you're giving them an opening to play the video yet again to ask you, Officer Van Dyke, is this first shot where you felt scared when he collapsed on the ground? Is that where he felt scared? Is really that what was going through your head when this person is lying on the pavement? Uh, That's going to be tough. Stacey, how effectively has the
1: defense presented Van Dyke's perspective without calling him to the stand?
2: Well, they've tried to do it in a couple ways. And um, probably the, the biggest way was actually the prosecution calling his partner, Joseph Walsh, to the stand. Because Joseph Walsh used the exact term that Jason Van Dyke would need to use in this case when he said, I believe Jason Van Dyke had a reasonable fear for his safety. If the jury finds that Jason Van Dyke did have a reasonable fear... They have to acquit him. So Walsh was a strong surrogate for Jason Van Dyke um, on the stand. And and there was that dramatic moment, right, during his testimony where the defense had him come into the well of the courtroom and demonstrate what he said Laquan McDonald did. Now, the video doesn't match it. And even the animated video provided by the defense doesn't match um, what Joseph Walsh said happened. But it it was a strong visual for the jury, a powerful moment for the defense, even if they weren't the ones who put it in motion.
1: Megan, since Officer Walsh took the stand, did we get any kind of preview about how prosecutors might push back against Jason Van Dyke's testimony?
3: Well, potentially, yes, a preview and in a way, kind of a do-over. If they saw any weaknesses and they want to kind of get a second chance at challenging this perspective, then they would get to do that if Van Dyke takes the stand.
1: Stacey, you've been covering uh, the courthouse for a long time. How do officers do historically when they're testifying on their own behalf?
2: Um, Historically, you know, the the few officers that are charged with police-involved shootings um, do very well when they testify uh, on their own behalf. Because the inclination of the jury is to disregard everything else and just focus on the officer who's saying, Look, I'm telling you I have a dangerous job, and I felt in fear for my safety when I pulled the trigger on on this gun and um, juries have have overwhelmingly you know sided with officers on that, but at the same time, we saw in Dallas just last month an officer who testified on his own behalf, and the jury didn't buy it, and uh, he was convicted and, and just recently sentenced to fifteen years in prison. If Jason Van Dyke's defense team doesn't put him on the stand,
1: is it possible we could see a different surrogate for him, for instance, his wife?
2: I don't know that you would see his wife as a as a witness in this case. She's not on the witness list as far as we know, and there's really nothing she can add about the shooting because she wasn't there. Megan, looking ahead, what do you expect to
1: see from the defense team in the coming week?
3: Well, uh, we believe they plan to call a psychologist who could also act as kind of a surrogate witness presenting what might be Van Dyke's perspective. This is a doctor who actually examined Van Dyke, and I believe it was 2016. He is purported to be an expert in the way that police shootings affect officers' perceptions, reactions, memory when they go through a stressful event like an officer-involved shooting. So he might get up there and say, Officer Van Dyke's uh, perceptions were likely not the same as you see on the video. And that's been a really consistent theme through this whole defense. That video is evidence, but it's not from Van Dyke's perspective. And that's something that this doctor could speak to. Again, another witness who's presenting Van Dyke's point of view without getting Van Dyke on the stand. That's Megan Corpo
1: and Stacey St. Clair with the Chicago Tribune. They're our partners in this podcast. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. If Jason Van Dyke takes the witness stand next week, it won't be the first time he's been questioned under oath about a fatal shooting by Chicago police. He had to give a 2008 deposition in a lawsuit brought by the family of an unarmed motorist who was shot to death by some of Van Dyke's fellow officers. Attorney Terry Eckel represented that family and took the deposition. Terry, we want to ask you what it was like to question Van Dyke, but first tell me more about that case, the shooting. Who was the motorist
0: who got killed? Uh, The motorist was a young 23-year-old Mexican immigrant by the name of Emmanuel Lopez. And Mr. Lopez was working in a sausage factory uh, on a night shift and was returning home when he became involved in a uh, traffic altercation with who we now know to be an off-duty Chicago police officer. Um, the officer and he got into the the, the um, traffic dispute. Uh, Emmanuel Lopez drove away. The off-duty police officer then stopped a marked squad car, and that resulted in a two squad cars as well as the off-duty police officer following and ultimately stopping Lopez's vehicle uh, adjacent to an alley. Uh, What happened then was uh, that four police officers fired a total of 42 shots. Uh, Sixteen of those hit Lopez. Many of them were at severe downward angles into his head, his back, and his neck, um, ultimately killing him. So that was the underlying case. Van Dyke was not involved in the shooting, uh, and he came to the scene shortly after the shooting took place.
1: What did the officers report about that incident?
0: Well, what they claimed was that when they stopped Lopez's vehicle, Lopez then pulled forward, hitting one of the officers with his car and then dragging him underneath the car for 8 to 10 feet the officer claimed that he was under the car uh, almost up to his, up to his uh, shoulders. That caused him to then take out his service revolver, start to fire at Lopez, and then three of the other four officers also began firing from different positions. So their ultimate story was that although Lopez was unarmed, he had no weapons of any kind, that he was using the car as a weapon and trying to essentially kill the officer who was pinned under the vehicle.
1: Now, Jason Van Dyke worked closely with some of these officers, and he was on duty, but he didn't get to the scene until after the shooting occurred. What happened when he got there?
0: Van Dyke was part of the same unit as the officers involved in the shooting. And timing was greatly in controversy in this case. But what Van Dyke said was that he was at a location in his squad car about two miles from where the shooting took place. And he heard over his radio, one of the officers on the scene of the shooting screaming, my partner's under the car. And so Van Dyke said that he and his partner then drove at a high rate of speed, uh, arriving at the scene of the shooting. Now, he And his deposition would not give me an estimate as to how long it was from the time that he got the call to the point where he arrived there. But um, based upon the location and the speed of the vehicle, it looked to me to be no more than two minutes after that radio dispatch came in. And what Van Dyke then proceeded to testify to was that when he got there, the officer who claimed he was under the front of the car was already standing on a sidewalk smoking a cigarette part of our theory of the case was that after these officers shot Lopez and realized he was unarmed, that they basically constructed the story that this one officer had been caught underneath the front of the car. And so timing became somewhat of an issue. But um, Van Dyke was there. And the other thing was Van Dyke gets this phone call. And then when he gets there, he claims there's already five squad cars there. So there was a lot that didn't make sense timing-wise about the call-in that Van Dyke claimed he got, which caused him to go to the scene.
1: While Jason Van Dyke wasn't on the scene when the shooting occurred, a sergeant told
0: him to write a report about the shooting. What did he put in that report? He was assigned to be what's called the paper car, which is to do the general case report as to what the incident was and what the version of events was. What Van Dyke did when I was taking his deposition, I asked him, because the report contained um, statements by the officers involved in the shooting, and I was trying to uh, question him about the circumstances surrounding, there was interviews, and what the demeanor and the condition of the officers were, and essentially what their stories were. And when I asked him in the deposition whether he talked to anybody, he said, no, I did not talk to anybody at the scene of the shooting. Well, I showed him his report where he's got all of these statements attributed to the other four, five officers. And he then proceeded to tell me that he didn't interview anyone. He didn't talk to to any uh, police officers at the scene. He didn't do any investigation and that the content of his report was the result of a detective handing him a piece of typed up paper and telling him that this is what you're to put in your general case report. He couldn't identify who that police officer was. He did say it was a detective and indicated that the piece of paper was given to him at the station and that he would have thrown the piece of paper away. So rather than conduct interviews himself and find out what these officers had to say, Van Dyke was essentially told what to put in his police report.
1: We looked at the deposition transcript, and and you really pushed Van Dyke on this issue. What did you take away
0: from... His story about how this report came to be. Well, it was consistent with what I believe, based upon my experience, is what the goal of it, the, the Chicago Police Department c- conducting investigations concerning shootings of fellow officers, which is to have a consistent story. And the investigators who were at the scene, first of all, in this case, they interviewed all the police officers together, and they came up with, a version of how this shooting went down, and wanted to make sure that what Van Dyke put in his police report was consistent with that. So they essentially told him what to put in his report. So it was an effort to maintain consistency as to how the shooting allegedly occurred.
1: You represented Emmanuel Lopez's family in a wrongful death lawsuit against the city. From your perspective, how
0: truthful was the story that Van Dyke reported? In terms of what he testified to. I didn't so much quarrel with whether he was telling the truth or lying. I just found the whole set of circumstances to be absurd, um, starting with the timing of when he arrived as to you know where people were at the time he got there, and then the fact that he's being told what to put in his police report. Um, I believe that's true. I don't think he's lying about the fact that some detective told him what to put in the report, but that's frankly, you know, not the way this investigation should have occurred. So it wasn't so much believing that he was being untruthful about what happened, but I just found the whole scenario to really be absurd as to how this thing was investigated.
1: So Terry, when this shooting took place, Jason Van Dyke had been out of the police academy for less than four years. He gets handed that version of the shooting to report under his own name. What do you think it teaches a young officer like Van Dyke?
0: Well, it's always difficult to try to to try to analyze what impact a particular case had on a person. But I have been involved in code of silence cases in the past. Uh, and I think what happened in the Lopez shooting and Van Dyke's um, dealings or experiences in that case are consistent with the belief that when that a Chicago police officer has, that when he gets jammed up, the other officers are going to attempt to help him get out of the problem he's in. So could be that his involvement in the Lopez case reinforced that belief.
1: And when you questioned Jason Van Dyke, he was under oath. How did he handle your questioning? Well,
0: I I didn't find him to be a particularly good witness. I thought he was... um, Somewhat condescending at times, a little bit arrogant um, uh you know so i didn't think I didn't think he was a particularly good or persuasive witness. i guess is the best way i would I would say it. Was it difficult
1: to get information out of him?
0: There was a lot of i don't knows and i don't recalls and I don't remember there were a ton of those, and that's very typical when you question police officers about the specifics of an incident. You know, when, when I asked him, for example, from the time of your call to the time of your arrival, how long did it take you? I don't know. Well, can you estimate no? So you get a lot of that. Um, you know, they don't want to pin themselves down to anything. So, you know, he was he was using the I don't know excuse in answer to a lot of questions.
1: Now, as we know, Jason Van Dyke is on trial for his own shooting, first degree murder charges. He's opted for a jury. Based on your experience as an attorney and your experience questioning Van Dyke, do you think it would be a good idea for him to take the stand?
0: Well, you know, I've been asked this question before, and in a self-defense case, or the justifiable use of force, which is the defense in the Laquan McDonald shooting, it's very difficult to try to advance that defense without the shooter testifying. So you start off with the fact that to advance the defense that he is he is using, it's really, really hard to convince a jury that his use of force was justified because it's what was going on in his mind at the time of shooting. You know, what was he thinking? What were his perceptions? Why did he do what he did? And he's the only person that can testify to that. So on the one hand, I think it's almost imperative that he testify to advance that defense. The other side is, he could get really, really annihilated by the prosecutors and cross-examination. And that exists in a lot of cases where, as a defense attorney, you may want to put your client on, but you've got to weigh where am I at right now in the case versus what could happen if I put the client on the stand to testify. And the defense is going to have to make that decision as to whether they think that their case will get better or could it get a lot worse if they put Van Dyke on.
1: Attorney Terry Eckel represented the family of Emmanuel Lopez. He was an unarmed motorist shot to death by some of Jason Van Dyke's fellow officers. In 2012, almost seven years after the incident, the city council approved a $2.2 million payment to Lopez's family. The settlement admitted no wrongdoing by the city or by the police officers. Sixteen Shots is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune. It was produced by James Edwards with assistance from Joe Disseau and Carrie Shepard. Our reporting team includes Shannon Heffernan, Chip Mitchell, and Patrick Smith. Mike Lansu is our digital editor with help from Paula Friedrich and Gabrielle Wright. Our senior editor is Rob Wildeboer. Brendan Bannazak is our executive producer. And Steve Edwards is WBEZ's chief content officer. Special thanks to the Tribune editors Matt O'Connor, Tracy Van Morlehem, and Angela Rosa O'Toole. And thanks to the WBEZ Newsroom, whose reporting was instrumental to this series. You can find out more about the case at wbez.org 16shots. Check this podcast feed regularly for updates from the trial of Officer Jason Van Dyke and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism, relentlessly pursuing the truth and providing you with the stories that impact your community, as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism and support the future of investigative reporting, like 16 Shots, by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com slash 16 Shots for a special subscription offer just for listeners of this podcast.